Greetings, listeners. We're back once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits like the Dreamlands, or things of a weird nature, or things that are Lovecraftian leaning, weird fiction, science fiction, horror, learn of terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins and vast staircases that lead down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds and in different time-space continua. From the creation of our galaxy to the death of the sun, this is an exploration of the Cthulhu mythos from the perspective of humans' concept of history. We are the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. You can find us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Season 8. Greetings and welcome to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And between episodes, let's see... 107 and 134, we will be talking about the Beatles. The Beatle a Mystery is a 1897 horror novel by British writer Richard Marsh. To tell you about it is to spoil it. So check it out, and that'll be going on from now until sometime in December. This episode is brought to you by FoundOutOnClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Subscribe to PGTTCM with D.B. Spitzer and Seraphie. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, we prefer Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Check out the new website over at PGTTCM.com and check out the merch table over at PGTTCM.Threadless.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PGTTCM. Or check us out on YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod, featuring The Hive, Ghost Story, Ghost Processional, Oppressive Gloom, and our theme song, The Chamber. Chapter 34. After 20 Years. How I reached the open air, I cannot tell you. I do not know. I have a confused recollection of rushing through vaulted passages, through endless corridors, of trampling over people who tried to arrest my passage, and the rest is blank. When I again came to myself, I was lying in the house of an American missionary named Clements. I had been found at early dawn, stark naked in a Cairo street, and picked up for dead. Judging from appearances, I must have wandered for miles, all through the night. Whence I had come, or whither I was going, no one could tell. I could not tell myself. For weeks, I hovered between life and death. The kindness of Mr. and Mrs. Clements was not to be measured by words. I was brought to their house a penniless, helpless, battered stranger, and they gave me all they had to offer, without money and without price, with no expectation of an earthly reward. 
Let no one pretend that there is no Christian charity under the sun. The debt I owed that man and woman, I was never able to repay. Before I was properly myself again, and in a position to offer some adequate testimony of the gratitude I felt, Mrs. Clements was dead, drowned during an excursion on the Nile, and her husband had departed on a missionary expedition into Central Africa, from which he never returned. Although, in a measure, my physical health returned, for months after I had left the roof of my hospitable hosts, I was in a state of semi-imbecility. I suffered from a species of aphasia. For days together I was speechless, and could remember nothing, not even my own name. And when the stage had passed, and I began to move more freely among my fellows, for years I was but a wreck of my former self. I was visited at all hours of the day and night by frightful, I know not whether to call them visions, they were real enough to me, but since they were visible to no one but myself, perhaps that is the word which best describes them. Their presence invariably plunged me into a state of abject terror, against which I was unable to even make a show of fighting. To such an extent did they embitter my existence that I voluntarily placed myself under the treatment of an expert in mental pathology. For a considerable period of time I was under his constant supervision, but the visitations were as inexplicable to him as they were to me. By degrees, however, they became rarer and rarer, until at last I flattered myself that I had once more become as other men. After an interval to make sure, I devoted myself to politics. Thenceforward I have lived, as they phrase it, in the public eye. Private life, in the peculiar sense of the term, I have had none. Mr. Lessingham ceased. His tale was not uninteresting, and to say the least of it was curious but I still was at a loss to understand what it had to do with me, or what was the purport of his presence in my room. Since he remained silent as if the matter, so far as he was concerned, was at an end, I told him so. I presume, Mr. Lessingham, that all this is but a prelude to the play. At present, I do not see where it is that I come in. Still, for some seconds, he was silent. When he spoke, his voice was grave and somber, as if he were burdened by a weight of woe. Unfortunately, as you put it, all this has been but a prelude to the play. Were it not so, I should not now stand in such pressing want of the services of a confidential agent, that is, of an experienced man of the world, who has been endowed by nature with phenomenal perceptive faculties, and in whose capacity and honor I can place the completest confidence. I smiled. The compliment was a pointed one. I hope your estimate of me is not too high. I hope not for my sake as well as for your own. I have heard great things of you. If ever man stood in need of all that human skill and acumen can do for him, I certainly am he. His words aroused my curiosity. I was conscious of feeling more interested than heretofore. I will do my best for you. Man can do no more. Only give my best a trial. I will, at once. He looked at me long and earnestly. Then, leaning forward, he said, lowering his voice perhaps unconsciously, The fact is, Mr. Champnell, that quite recently events have happened which threaten to bridge the chasm of twenty years, and to place me face to face with that plague spot of the past. At this moment I stand in imminent peril of becoming again the wretched thing I was when I fled from that den of all the devils. It is to guard me against this that I have come to you. I want you to unravel the tangled thread which threatens to drag me to my doom, 
and, when unraveled, to sunder it, forever, if God wills, in twain. Explain. To be frank, for the moment, I thought him mad. He went on. Three weeks ago, when I returned late one night from a sitting in the House of Commons, I found on my study table a sheet of paper on which there was a representation, marvelously like, of the creature into which, as it seemed to me, the woman of the songs was transformed as I clutched her throat between my hands. The mere sight of it brought back one of those visitations of which I have told you, and which I thought I had done with forever. I was convulsed by an agony of fear, thrown into a state approximating to a paralysis both of mind and body. But why? I cannot tell you. I only know that I have never dared to allow my thoughts to recur to the last dread scene, lest the mere recurrence should drive me mad. What was this you found upon your study table? Merely a drawing? It was a representation, produced by what process I cannot say, which was so wonderfully, so diabolically, like the original, that for a moment I thought the thing itself was on my table. Who put it there? That is precisely what I wish to find out, what I wish you to make it your instant business to ascertain. I have found the thing, under similar circumstances, on three separate occasions on my study table, and each time it has had on me the same hideous effect. Each time after you have returned from a late sitting in the House of Commons? Exactly. Where are these, uh, what should I call them, delineations? That, again, I cannot tell you. What do you mean? What I say. Each time when I recovered, the thing had vanished. Sheet of paper and all? Apparently, though on that point I could not be positive. You will understand that my study table is apt to be littered with sheets of paper, and I could not absolutely determine that the thing had not stared at me from one of those. The delineation itself, to use your word, certainly had vanished. I began to suspect that this was a case rather for a doctor than for a man of my profession, and hinted as much. Don't you think it is possible, Mr. Lessingham, that you have been overworking yourself? That you have been driving your brain too hard, and that you have been the victim of an optical delusion? I thought so myself. I may say that I almost hope so. But wait till I have finished. You will find that there is no loophole in that direction. He appeared to be recalling events in their due order. His manner was studiously cold, as if he were endeavoring, despite the strangeness of his story, to impress me with the literal accuracy of each syllable he uttered. The night before last, on returning home, I found in my study a stranger. A stranger? Yes, in other words, a burglar. A burglar? I see. Go on. He had paused. His demeanor was becoming odder and odder. On my entry, he was engaged in forcing an entry into my bureau. I need hardly say that I advanced to seize him, but I could not. You could not? How do you mean you could not? I mean simply what I say. You must understand that this was no ordinary felon. Of what nationality he was, I cannot tell you. He only uttered two words, and they were certainly in English, but apart from that, he was dumb. He wore no covering on his head or feet. Indeed, his only garment was a long, dark, flowing cloak, which, as it fluttered about him, revealed that his limbs were bare. A unique costume for a burglar, the instant I saw him, I realized that he was in some way connected with that adventure in the Rue de Rabagas. What he said and did proved it to the hilt. What did he say and do? 
As I approached to effect his capture, he pronounced aloud two words which recalled that awful scene, the recollection of which always lingers in my brain, and of which I never dared to permit myself to think. Their very utterance threw me into a sort of convulsion. What were the words? Mr. Lessingham opened his mouth and shut it. A marked change took place in the expression of his countenance. His eyes became fixed and staring, resembling the glassy orbs of the somnambulist. For a moment I feared that he was going to give me an object lesson in the visitations of which I had heard so much. I rose with a view of offering him assistance. He motioned me back. Thank you, it will pass away. His voice was dry and husky, unlike his usual silvern tones. After an uncomfortable interval, he managed to continue. You see for yourself, Mr. Champnell, what a miserable weakling, when this subject is broached, I still remain. I cannot utter the words the stranger uttered. I cannot even write them down. For some inscrutable reason, they have on me an effect similar to that which spells and incantations had on people in tales of witchcraft. I suppose, Mr. Lessingham, that there is no doubt that this mysterious stranger was not himself an optical delusion? Scarcely. There is the evidence of my servants to prove the contrary. Did your servants see him? Some of them, yes. Then there is the evidence of the Bureau. The fellow had smashed the top right in two. When I came to examine the contents, I learned that a packet of letters was missing. They were letters which I had received from Miss Linden a lady whom I hope to make my wife. This also I state to you in confidence. What use would he be likely to make of them? If matters stand as I fear they do, he might make a very serious misuse of them. If the object of these wretches, after all these years, is a wild revenge, they would be capable, having discovered what she is to me, of working Miss Linden a fatal mischief, or, at the very least, of poisoning her mind. I see. How did the thief escape? Did he, like the delineation, vanish into air? He escaped by the much more prosaic method of dashing through the drawing room window and clambering down from the veranda into the street, where he ran right into someone's arms. Into whose arms? A constable's? No, into Mr. Atherton's. Sidney Atherton's. The inventor? The same. Do you know him? I do. Sidney Atherton and I are friends of a good many years standing. But Atherton must have seen where he came from. And anyhow, if he was in the state of undress which you have described, why didn't he stop him? Mr. Atherton's reasons were his own. He did not stop him, and so far as I can learn, he did not attempt to stop him. Instead, he knocked at my hall door to inform me that he had seen a man climb out of my window. I happen to know that, at certain seasons, Atherton is a queer fish, but that sounds very queer indeed. The truth is, Mr. Chapnell, that if it were not for Mr. Atherton, I doubt I should have troubled you even now. The accident of his being an acquaintance of yours makes my task easier. He drew his chair closer to me with an air of briskness which had been foreign to him before. For some reason, which I was unable to fathom, the introduction of Atherton's name seemed to have enlivened him. However, I was not long to remain in darkness. In half a dozen sentences, he threw more light on the real cause of his visit to me than he had done in all that had gone before. His bearing, too, was more businesslike and to the point. 
For the first time, I had some glimmerings of the politician, alert, keen, eager, as he is known to all the world. Mr. Atherton, like myself, has been a postulant for Miss Linden's hand. Because I have succeeded where he has failed, he has chosen to be angry. It seems that he has had dealings either with my visitor of Tuesday night or with some other his acquaintance, and he proposes to use what he has gleaned from him to the disadvantage of my character. I have just come from Mr. Atherton. From hints he dropped, I conclude that probably during the last few hours, he has had an interview with someone who was connected in some way with that lurid patch in my career. That this person made so-called revelations, which were nothing but a series of monstrous lies, and these so-called revelations Mr. Atherton has threatened, in so many words, to place before Miss Linden. That is an eventuality which I wish to avoid. My own conviction is that there is, at this moment in London, an emissary from that den in the Willem Rue de Rabagas. For all I know, it may be the woman of the songs herself. Whether the sole purport of this individual's presence is to do me injury, I am, as yet, in no position to say. But that it is proposed to work me mischief, at any rate, by the way, is plain. I believe that Mr. Atherton knows more about this person's individuality and whereabouts than he has been willing so far to admit. I want you, therefore, to ascertain these things on my behalf, to find out what and where this person is, to drag her, or him, out into the light of day. In short, I want you to effectually protect me from the terrorism which threatens once more to overwhelm my mental and physical powers which bids fair to destroy my intellect, my career, my life, my all. What reasons have you for suspecting that Mr. Atherton has seen this individual of whom you speak? Has he told you so? Practically, yes. I know Atherton well. In his not infrequent moments of excitement, he is apt to use strong language, but it goes no further. I believe him to be the last person in the world to do anyone an intentional injustice, under any circumstances, whatever. If I go to him, armed with credentials from you, when he understands the real gravity of the situation, which it will be my business to make him do, I believe that spontaneously, of his own accord, he will tell me as much about this mysterious individual as he knows himself. Then go to him at once? Good, I will. The result I will communicate to you. I rose to my seat. As I did so, someone rushed into the outer office with a din and a clatter. Andrew's voice and another became distinctly audible. Andrew is apparently raised in vigorous expostulation. Raised seemingly in vain, for presently the door of my own particular sanctum was thrown open with a crash. And Mr. Sidney Atherton himself came dashing in, evidently conspicuously under the influence of one of those not infrequent moments of excitement of which I had just been speaking. End of chapter 34